This program is brought to you by Emory University. And today, Doug Poe will speak to us on the intersection between Wesleyan anthropology and Black Lives Matter. Join me, please, in welcoming Doug Poe. Let me first thank Dean Love for the uh, invitation to come and speak. Noel for the wonderful introduction, the hospitality of uh, so many of you while I've been here, I truly appreciate it. And also it's wonderful to see so many uh, friends and colleagues. So it is good to be back home here at Candler once again. Um, let me briefly sort of outline where I'm headed with this topic, the intersection between Wesleyan anthropology and Black Lives Matter, and then we will get into it. Um, the good news is, is I'm not going to be long, so you don't have to, uh, for those of you who have to leave early, um, I'm not going to be long-winded, so you should be in really good time to be able to get out of here um, on time. Um, I'm going to basically um, make sort of three moves. The first is I want to highlight sort of Wesley's anthropology, and I will connect it to his thoughts upon slavery. Then I want to talk about black lives in the United States, and I will connect that to Black Lives Matter. And finally, I will end with the intersections and why Wesley vision is helpful as we think about Black Lives Matter today. Um, let me pull up the PowerPoint. So we can begin, and let me make just a couple of preamble comments that um, I'm going to make some assumptions about terms that will be used um, in this case and that uh, this will not be the first time if I were actually teaching this people would have heard these terms but in this case there's not much I can do about it. And the second is that unless noted all references to Wesley are to John Wesley so that I won't fully write his name. The other sort of preamble comment I want to make is Wesleyan sources. Uh, most of you have seen Bible, reason, experience, tradition, especially if you're United Methodist, you've seen this time and time again. The, the addition I'm adding, or what I think makes me a little bit unique within sort of the Wesleyan uh, tradition, is that I also pull strongly from AME, AMEZ, and CME. So I see them as critical to sort of thinking about the Wesleyan tradition. Um, some of my other colleagues don't pull as much as I do from these traditions, so I think it's important to highlight that as I think and construct Wesleyan theology, this is a critical source for how I do so. So let's get into it. I believe the norm for thinking about sort of Wesleyan studies is holiness. Um, that for, for Wesley, the holiness is his center that holds everything together. It acts sort of as a telos and that to which the process we should be on the journey towards. For Wesley, it's, understanding, it's an understanding of what it means to really, truly be human. Um, we're being formed into new beings and ultimately seek to be fully human as Christ was fully human. So for Wesley, holiness links together theological concepts like anthropology, 
grace and soteriology. Holiness links other concepts for him as well, but uh, today our focus will hit mostly on his anthropology, and you will see some of the uh, tenets of grace and soteriology as we move along. Wesley's understanding of being made in God's image is pretty traditional. Um, his doctrine of creation, he sees humans as being created good. In Sermon 45 of New Birth, if you read uh, paragraph 1-1, quoting Wesley, he says, And God, the three-one God, said, Let us make humans in our image. After our likeness, so God created humans in God's own image. In the image of God created he him. He's quoting from Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Not barely in his natural image, a picture of his own immortality, a spiritual being endued with understanding, freedom of will, and various affections, nor merely in his political image, the governor of this lower world having dominion over the fishes of the sea and over all the earth, but chiefly in his moral image, which according to the apostle is righteousness and true holiness, quoting from Ephesians 4.24, in this image of God was humanity made. So Wesley here lays out his tripart understanding of how human beings were created in God's image. Unlike other sort of systematic theologians, however, Wesley does not sort of write any sort of treatise that goes into detail of what is meant by this. So we have to do some interpretation from his sermons and other writings of what this sort of means in terms of teasing this out, his anthropology. So we begin with uh, another Wesley sermons, The Image of God, where Wesley will talk about sort of the doctrine of sins or humanity falling. And Wesley does follow Augustine in some ways in that he does believe that we are depraved. Wesley believes that because of the fall, everything that humans do is touched by sin, that there's this loss of holiness, um, and that we're no longer capable of what God has intended for us without God intervening into our situation. So the fall has a direct impact on the Imago Dei and our need for restoration back into God's image for Wesley. And for Wesley, this is critically important for how he understands and shapes much of his uh, anthropology, also grace, and his soteriology. And this is sort of the, the critical piece. So as a result of the fall, um, beginning with the natural image, Wesley believes the natural image is distorted. It remains with us, but it is distorted. And for Wesley, we continue to be spiritual beings with souls, but our understanding is clouded and our liberty is no longer under God. Um, so for Wesley, we still are made in God's image, but we are no longer made in God's image in the way we were intended to be. Now, what is important for Wesley for this connects to his understanding of grace. Um, we use the term prevenient grace, but Wesley actually used the term preventing grace. Um, so for Wesley, preventing grace means that God prevents us from experiencing the fall or the consequences of being lost in a way that we should. We are prevented from that because of this preventing grace. So that's why we are able to retain this natural image, even though we are fallen creatures. 
as a result of the fall, the political image remains, but not to the same degree. So for Wesley, we're no longer stewards in a way we were intended to be stewards in nature. Um, this is a relational issue. It's a governance issue. Um, Ted Weber, who uh, was at Candler at one time, wrote a book on the political image of God, Politics and the Order of Salvation. And summarizing what he talks about on pages 393 to 395, he sort of argues that for Wesley, with the political image, what takes place is the constitution of the political image has not been lost, but the representational image has been lost. So the constitutional aspect means we're still in the roles of stewards. We just no longer represent God in the way we were initially intended to represent God. This is a key insight and critical for understanding what it means for our relationships in terms of each other, but also what it means for governance and power relationships between us. Wesley writes the least about the political image. And it's actually the image that I find the most fascinating. And as we move along, we'll talk uh, more about this political image of God. As a result of the fall, the moral image is completely lost. So Wesley believes that there's a complete loss of righteousness and holiness, that there's no way for us to relate to God without God's intervention into our situation. This is typically where Wesley focuses his understanding of holiness because for Wesley, this is where we mirror God's love, justice, and mercy, and truth. It's the recovery of the moral image for Wesley that you will find in most of his sermons, his books, and his essays. So when he's talking about the recovery of holiness, he's typically talking about the recovery of the moral image. He believes this is what we're called to do as Christians, is to work daily to move toward sanctification, to become Christ-like, and the recovery of this moral image of God. So what is necessary for humans is the recovery of the Imago Dei. It's the process of holiness during one's life that takes us on this journey to recovering the natural, political, and moral image of God. This uh, restoration into God's image is a soteriological process for Wesley, uh, preventing grace, which we've already talked about, justifying grace. This is what reconciles us to God. It opens up the possibility for all humans of a relationship with God. And then sanctifying grace, where we experience healing and are restored back to what we were intended to be initially. Um, in terms of becoming more like Christ with God. So all of these things sort of work together for how Wesley understands what takes place for the image of God. So what I find sort of interesting then is this question, then are we all human? And are we all really capable of this journey of holiness towards full humanity? And of course, this was an issue during Wesley's day because of the issue of slavery. And one of Wesley's famous works is his work on the thoughts upon slavery. And in part is a discourse on, Af on Africans being human. And he's picking up this issue and, and struggling with this account. In Thoughts Upon Slavery itself, he relies heavily on a Quaker, Anthony Benezet. Um, what is fascinating about this, however, is Wesley 
doesn't make a biblical argument against slavery. Uh, and he typically makes a biblical argument for most things when he approaches them. But in this case, he, he stays away from it because he recognizes the danger in trying to make a biblical argument against slavery. Wesley seeks to prove, I believe, that Africans are made in the image of God in this work. One of the challenges that I say is important to recognize, if you haven't read Thoughts Upon Slavery, if you pick it up and you sort of read this, you would, for many people, say this sounds very paternalistic. You have this white Englishman talking about Africans and, and slavery. What right does he have to do this? And I will say, yes, that is true. So we'll, we'll just accept that. However, having saying yes, that is true, I also think we have to be reminded that during this time that Wesley was writing, the context was very different from our context, um, so that we have to recognize the contextual difference that he was writing in versus our time and, and sort of navigate sort of that sort of paternalistic uh, piece of it. So let's talk about thoughts upon slavery. In the early part of this essay, Wesley sets out to illustrate Africans are as civilized as Europeans. Um, I'm going to quote from Wesley uh, in, in, in the essay. He says, the fullest are governed by their chief men who are ruled with much moderation. The government is easy because the people are of quiet and good disposition and so well instructed in what is right that a man who wrongs another is the abomination to all. And, and Wesley here is trying to make the argument that they are as civilized as any English society. And if you read it, he will have other paragraphs making a similar argument. Part of what Wesley is trying to do is point out who is really human and who is not as human in this case. So what Wesley is saying is those who are involved in slavery are saying it's the Africans who are not human, but they've got it backwards. It's really the people involved in slavery who are not human. You are the ones that need to look in the mirror. You're the ones with the real issue. So he's trying to flip the argument and make them look in the mirror on themselves. Part of um, the challenge Wesley faced during this time is there were those who believed that Africans were predestined to be enslaved, that this was their destiny. Um, for Wesley, because of his understanding of the Imago Dei, he believed this was a false claim. You could not, as a human, be predestined to be enslaved in the way that the slave trade was taking place. That this sort of line of argument made no sense to Wesley. He didn't believe one could argue a superiority over another human being. Um, he believed it goes against God's intention for creation and thinking in this way. So for Wesley, if we're all created in the natural, political, and moral image of God, then this idea that some could be predestined to a life of slavery and others could not doesn't hold water. It makes no sense to him. He says that we're all fallen human beings. We're all capable of restoration back into God's image. 
Wesley also had a second issue. So while Wesley also realizes this particular challenge, he's also talking to individuals who are not Christian when it comes to the slave trade. Um, so that sort of arguing a case again using biblical arguments or even his argument against predestination, is it going to make any sense to them because is an argument that mainly is geared towards Christians. So the, the question is, how do you address an argument to those who are not Christian to say that you shouldn't be involved in the slave trade? Um, and how do you do this in language that resonates both with Christians and non-Christians at the same time? And I'll talk more about that in a second. I think one of the key things, and I really want to highlight this for Wesley, is that Wesley is not interested just in stopping slavery. Wesley's not interested in just stopping slavery. Wesley is really arguing for the full humanity of Africans, that they're made exactly the same as English people. And we have to understand sort of how radical this is during his time. Because the, the, if you think about it, during his time, there were individuals who sought to end slavery, but did not buy into the full humanity of Africans. An example would be Richard Allen and the others who walked out at St. George's. The people in St. George's did not support slavery, but they didn't see Richard Allen and the others as being equal to them in terms of being fully human. Then you look at the other side, there were those who bought into an argument that certainly the Africans had souls, but yes, they should be enslaved. George Whitfield would be a prime example. So George Whitfield certainly thought Africans had souls, you should preach to Africans, but he thought they should be enslaved. So, so Wesley is navigating a position that is different from these other individuals suggesting full humanity. So we have to make sure that we, uh, we pick that up. Um, I think this is part of what makes Wesley's argument somewhat unique, that even during his day, his vision of humanity is somewhat different from the vision of humanity that others held during his time. So what does Wesley do? Wesley's argument against slavery explicitly uses a natural law argument to sort of counter these different points that he was up against. Um, quoting from Wesley again in Thoughts Upon Slavery, Wesley writes, this is the plain, unaggravated matter of fact. Such is the manner wherein our African slaves are procured, such the manner wherein removed from their native land and wherein they are treated in our plantations. I would now inquire whether these things can be defended on the principles of even heathen honesty, whether they can be reconciled, setting the Bible out of the question, with any degree of either justice and mercy. The grand plea is they are authorized by law, but can law, human law, change the nature of things? Can it turn darkness into light or evil into good? By no means. And he goes on um, with this, this case. So, so Wesley is, is trying to appeal to say that we need to end this based upon understanding that we all have a right and are all sort of citizens 
um, equally and with this natural law argument. Wesley doesn't typically use a natural law argument, so that's what makes this sort of unique for him, because this is not the way that he would normally argue. Um, Wesley typically, of course, would use a biblical argument, but in this case, he understands that the biblical argument is not going to move his case forward, so he's trying to navigate between Christians and non-Christians and get them to recognize the importance of seeing Africans as being fully human. Now, I believe as you read sort of underneath what Wesley's doing in this text, that his anthropology sort of is implicit or undergirds what he is doing in terms of uh, his natural law argument. So in terms of the natural image, Wesley names the rights um, for slaves to have liberty and that slaves actually are do have immortal souls. So again, in Thoughts Upon Slavery, Wesley writes, obtaining them from their native country and depriving them of liberty itself, to which an Angolian has the same right as an Englishman. Those who have souls as immortal as your own, and he will go on from there. So, so Wesley's making implicitly this natural rights argument that he understands that Africans are the same as Englishmen. I also believe he's making an argument for the political image, how we're in relationship to one another. Throughout the essay, Wesley is arguing against the system of slavery itself, the power dynamic of slavery itself. And he goes as far as prodding um, those who are in England who are benefiting from the system of slavery and saying, hey, you're benefiting from this system even though you're not directly involved in it, and you need to stop benefiting from it. Um, so, so that a part of his argument is he recognizes this is a systemic issue and not just this issue of those who are directly involved in the slave trade itself. And finally, um, the moral image mirroring God's love, justice, and mercy. So at the end of the essay, um, Wesley finally breaks down because he can't stand it any longer, and uh, he becomes much more explicit about sort of uh, Christianity. And, and Wesley is, at this point, really calling them to recognize what is right before God and say, understand that you have to stop this because you have to understand this is what, not, what God has not called us to do. We have not been called by God to be behaving in this way. Um, so he says this requires getting out of the slave trade. So, so we see implicit in this Wesley's sort of anthropology. So to summarize, Wesley's argument is primarily a natural law argument. Implicit in his argument against slavery is his anthropology. Typically, Wesley focuses on the recovery of the moral image, but in this essay, the natural and the political image are front and center. Wesley is seeking to counter claims against African humanity, and his understanding of anthropology undergirds this argument. Wesley envisions all humans being capable and seeking to be restored in God's image, which is holiness. So now we're going to sort of transition to sort of the, the second piece of the discussion today, and this is African-American humanity today. 
So one could argue, coming from Wesley's day, that we sort of have moved beyond this question of humanity. That while we may agree that we have racial issues, the issues are not the same as the basic sort of issues Wesley was facing during his time. Or to put it in Wesleyan theological language, that we're not sort of questioning the ability of the restoration into holiness. Um, and of course, some would argue the election of the first African-American president points to the fact that we are in a post-racial society today. Unfortunately, um, as we look at what has taken place, um, up here we have uh, a picture of the Obamas pictured as monkeys. And if you do a Google search, you will find many images of the president um, or the president and his wife pictured as less than human, uh, which directly speaks to Wesley's understanding of being created in the natural image of God, that, that this still is an issue for us today for the very person people point to for us being in a post-racial society in terms of that we sort of move beyond these questions of race. And what is fascinating about this, if you think about Obama is one of the most educated individuals, more educated than even many of our other presidents, but still is pictured in this sort of dehumanizing manner. This next picture is a picture of uh, police on one side and African Americans on the other side taken in Ferguson, Missouri, um, after the Michael Brown killing. And here we sort of have uh, an image of the political image of God. And so in this case, again, Wesley's category helps us because it speaks to this question of authority. And is authority always on the side of whites? and not on the side of African-Americans. And how is the relationship brokered between whites and African-Americans when it comes to this question of authority? Uh, the Mike Brown shooting shine a deeper light on this issue, not only in Ferguson, but in the United States itself, and one that we continue to confront even today as we, we think about what has taken place in terms of governance. And finally, this last picture is a picture of uh, Mother Emanuel AME Church. Um, this one hit our Wesley theological community hard because Reverend Pinckney was one of our D-Men students. Um, so for those who are not familiar, nine individuals were killed at Mother AME um, this past June. A uh, young man came in while they were having Bible study stayed for the entire Bible study, which is the part that sort of strikes me as being really strange, but stayed for the whole Bible study and kills them at the end of Bible study. And this sort of speaks to the moral image of God, that they sort of mirror to this young man the love and mercy that was not mirrored back to them in this way. So all of these are examples of sort of this ongoing challenge we have with anthropology using these Wesleyan categories that that in many ways we really haven't moved beyond the need for thinking about these categories sort of in a deep way. The three women pictured here are the three organizers of the national Black Lives Matter. Opal Tometi, 
Alicia Garza, and Patrice Colliers. So there are also local Black Lives Matter, but I'm sort of sticking with the national um, Black Lives Matter because the locals sort of um, do some activities that the national don't agree with. So I want to make that distinction between the way I'm, I'm teasing this out. Um, Black Lives Matter was created as a platform to share what was going on in the African-American community. And it actually started in reaction to the Trayvon Martin killing, although most people think about it in terms of the Michael Brown shooting, but it actually started in reaction to the uh, Trayvon Martin shooting. What is fascinating about Black Lives Matter is they are really suspicious of religious affiliation, really suspicious of religious affiliation. There's tension, particularly between them and the traditional civil rights leaders. Um, in Washington this past summer, there was a march by Al Sharpton, uh, Justice for All, and there was huge conflict because they wanted Al Sharpton to allow someone from the national organization to be on a platform and speak and Sharpton didn't want anyone from the, to be on a platform and speak. Um, so there was a lot of conflict and butting of heads, and this has taken place in other arenas. Um, part of this, I believe, has to do with the fact that the national organization has three African-American women um, at the helm. So, so uh, I'm not going there today. I'm going to say that to Joy. <laughs> but there's a womenist critique. <laughs> That is certainly uh, embedded in uh, what has taken place between the civil rights leaders and, and Black Lives Matter. Um, but but, but it is, it's fascinating, though. But, but there's a real suspicion of religion that has taken place between these two. The quote up here comes from a, an article, article by Julia Craven in the Huffington Post. And this is uh, Opal Tometi. She says, you have a duty in this moment in history to take action and stand on the side of people who have been oppressed for generations. Um, so what is fascinating to me, as you read particularly some of her other comments and things, is she clearly has a strong liberationist theme in her writings, in the way that she thinks about what the movement is doing. And she strongly believes we are called to stand with those who are downtrodden in the United States. And for her, she sees African-Americans as those at this point in time who are downtrodden. Now, for those of us in the theological realm, if you took this quote and you didn't know who said the quote, you would think this quote came from James Cone. You know, you, if you just read the quote and didn't have any idea who said the quote, because it easily talks about standing with those who are downtrodden and God being on the side of the oppressed. Um, and of course, one of Cone's famous works is God of the Oppressed. So, so my point is, is although Tometi and others in the movement are suspicious of sort of religious institutions and leaders, their language certainly lends itself the theological analysis and has theological relevance as we look at it. 
So the big question with Black Lives Matter is, are they lifting up black humanity over others? Should we be talking about humanity of all and not just blacks? This is the question that is pressed um, time and time again. Um, I'm going to read a, a, a couple of quotes and then comment. And again, these are from Tometi. When we say black lives matter, we are not saying that any other life doesn't matter. That has never, ever been our message. Our message has always been from a place of love for our people and even love for our society. It's a distraction anyway when people want to pick apart the words, but if they truly understand the reality of the black experience in the United States, they would not be so scared to come us alongside us. So she's arguing that the intent is not to privilege sort of... Uh, blacks over anyone else, but it's an attempt to have black humanity recognized within the United States context. And, and, I, and I think that is important because that has been the debate that continues in this country is they're trying to press themselves over someone else, but it's not really pressing over. So it's just trying to be recognized for having equal humanity. Um, I think these quotes help us to understand what it is that they're trying to do and to accomplish in, in confronting these issues that are hinted in this Wesleyan anthropology. And I also think that what they're doing in their work actually helps us to return to some of the work of the early womenists like Jacqueline Grant with uh, White Women's Christ, Black Women's Jesus where she's thinking about these same sort of issues that are taking place. So in some ways, uh, they're taking us old school um, and making us sort of reclaim and rethink some of those issues we thought were done and we didn't have to worry about them anymore. So Black Lives Matters is focusing on the humanity question by pointing to ways that African-Americans have experienced and continue to experience dehumanization. The goal is not denying the humanity of others, but is seeking the humanity of black lives. Ultimately, the goal is the ending of systemic racial dehumanization. The movement is suspicious of religious affiliation, um, so their argument is not overtly religious, but certainly lends itself to theological sort of reflection. So this helps us to sort of uh, move now to so our, our third transition, which is the intersections. So while Black Lives Matter is not explicitly religious, I believe it does intersect with Wesleyan anthropology. Um, certainly, it doesn't use the same language but Black Lives Matter seeks the full humanization for people of color. This is similar to what Wesley was seeking for Africans in his attempt to stop slavery. So what is key for Wesley, or what was key for Wesley, was not simply stopping slavery, but an understanding of the full humanity of Africans. So while Black Lives Matter doesn't use the same language, I think we can use Wesleyan categories with the natural political and moral image 
to talk about what it means to be fully human still in this United States context today. In particular, we can talk about what it means to be dehumanized and what it means to be restored fully back into God's image. So at this point, what I want to do is focus a little bit more on the political image of God. And here, I believe, Cone helps Wesley with uh, the way that he thinks about liberation, particularly in the United States context. Um, a reminder, the political image is the way that we relate to one another and we understand governance. So I think Cone sort of expands how we should think about the political image and that Cone comes at this from obviously a very different perspective than Wesley was coming at it. So uh, um, to make that clear. But, but Cone wants us to think more concretely about this journey to holiness through an African-American lens. And, and let me uh, just give this little quote um, from God of the Oppressed. To affirm that liberation is an expression of the image of God is to say not only who God is, but also who I am and who my people are. So, so for Cone, embedded in the restoration into the image of God is this concept of liberation which is critically important. And, and um, what I want to just talk about are a few things that I think this means in terms of recovering the political image. So first, what I think it means is that for Cone, God's intervention into our lives is not um, simply an intervention that sort of watches what takes place in terms of letting things play out. But for Cone, God's intervention is, I am decidedly going to stand with those who are poor and downtrodden, which is a pretty strong political claim. Um, and a claim that I will say Wesley would not make. You know, uh, so, so this is a, would be a shift, uh, in my opinion, for Wesley. For Cone, this liberation means that God is going to create a right balance between the powerful and the powerless so that we can see an evening of the playing field that takes place. Where I think Cone and Wesley are similar is that Cone believes that our participation is required in the recovery of this sort of liberation, um, or as I'm talking about it, the political image, that God is not acting alone in doing this, although God is sort of acting first, but our participation is required. When I was at Candler before, I uh, TA'd, for, TA'd for Archbishop Tutu also, and um, Tutu talked about that what was critical in South Africa was actually reading Cone and an understanding of liberation and how his writings helped them to understand the need for participation and the fight for justice and the liberation. And I think that's important and what is sort of being pointed to in terms of what it means to be politically active in the right way in terms of this restoration that Cohn is talking about. And, and finally, um, although many will find this controversial, I think Cohn is also arguing not 
just for blacks to participate, but whites should be participating um, in this fight for the restoration and to the image of God. That, that it really, if this is going to re work, requires the participation of everyone to move this forward. Um, so I think Cone helps us to get this sort of expanded understanding of what it means to be restored into the political image of God that Wesley, of course, would have no way of thinking about during his day and, and time. So Wesley was dealing with dehumanization of Africans. Black Lives Matter is dealing with the dehumanization of black lives here in the United States. Wesley does not use an explicitly Christian argument to address slavery. Black Lives Matter is suspicious of traditional black church. One can see where Wesley implies his tripart understanding of the image of God and his thoughts upon slavery. Black Lives Matter and their opposition to systemic racial issue sort of resonates with an understanding of the political image of God if we use my expanded understanding of Wesley's notion um, through Cohn. Wesley understood slavery as systemic and not something that one could avoid simply by claiming not to own slaves. Black Lives Matter perceives the dehumanization of black lives as a systemic issue and not isolated events of misbehavior. The ultimate vision of Wesley and Black Lives Matter, in my opinion, falls under Wesley's category of holiness, meaning that it's the recovery into the full image of God, that we're being restored into full humanity. Now, having said this, I do want to be clear. I'm not suggesting Wesley and Black Lives Matter are saying the same thing, because that would be inaccurate. They are not saying the same thing. But I do think that there are intersections between what they are claiming and how we can sort of read them. So the question is, according to King, where do we go from here? Um, in terms of holiness, I believe this vision that Wesley has is absolutely on target. That what it means for us to become whole people requires being restored into the image of God. Where I think that Wesley needs help is that Wesley did not write or fully explain what it means to be restored into the political image of God, and that's where I think individuals like Cohn can help us to understand what that means, particularly in this context. In the United States, I believe we have to pay more attention to the political image and how it impacts what it means to be human for us. That we have to alter our dialogues today so that we have a better understanding of history and what is behind how we have gotten to where we are in this place and time. Particularly, we have to understand sort of governance and the systemic nature of governance. And I think, again, this is where um, we have struggled. It's easier to talk about sort of individual um, restoration, but it's really hard to talk about the systemic nature of how this works. I believe as Methodists, if we take seriously Wesley's call to be restored into the image of God, it will mean taking seriously black lives, which also means taking seriously the lives of others who are being dehumanized. I say this realizing it is not an easy task or even one that all Methodists 
necessarily will buy into as necessary. But my hope is that we see the challenge confronting us, but have caught a glimpse of the possibility before us that can lead to the full humanity of all. So, so those are some clear places where I see the intersection. And I will end um, with this slide, hopefully in pretty good time here. Um, last words, and these literally were Wesley's last words. Um, Wesley's last words were to Wilberforce um, in this letter. I'm not going to read the letter. I'll let you, if you will, you can read it while it's up there. Um, and in this letter, he is sort of, in my opinion, upping the ante. Um, because Wesley understands truly at this point the systemic nature of slavery and what he's up against and, and what he is fighting. Um, and he presses Wilberforce to keep fighting to end slavery, but not just to end it, to address the fact that Africans are not given full hum, human rights similar to Europeans and whites in the United States. What is sort of fascinating as you read this letter there's this one point where Wesley foreshadows Dred Scott's famous line, no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Wesley says, the oath of a black against a white goes for nothing. And he calls this villainy um, in the letter. Um, so in this letter, I think if we sort of understand or get a sense of what Wesley is about theologically, that, that Wesley really is concerned not only with, as he's often claimed to be, sort of this individual holiness, but he's really concerned with the systemic nature of holiness and that his charge of Wilberforce is to fight against the systemic nature of holiness and to fight with everything he has against this system. And um, it's a claim that we as Methodists today need to take up if we are to sort of truly live into what I believe is our Wesleyan anthropology. I will stop there. <laughs> The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.